Bibles and would like to turn with me will be in Galatians chapter 4, verses uh, 1 through 7. Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. This is the word of the Lord. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so that you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever. We spend, I believe, a large portion of our life being worried about what other people think about us. Uh, often this is consumed with the quest and the desire for love. It is true in our relationships. It's true no matter what age we are. How do people see me? How do they perceive me? As kids, we seek the care and love of our parents. How do we earn and uh, keep that love? As adults, we look to a spouse or others who will love us, and we worry and question the validity of that love. Am I lovable? Or who will love me? And because of this, we tend at times to test the love people have for us. Well, if I do this and they don't reject me, then they really must love me. Or will they let me down? And if they do let me down, how will I handle it? And this is no less true when we consider our relationship to God. Does God love me? Sadly, we often allow our earthly relationships to inform our heavenly one. We are waiting for the other shoe to drop where God comes in and says, no, you're really not that lovable. Or we say things like, it's not possible for God to love me. Have you met me? God obviously can't love me in this way. Paul for us throughout Galatians has been drawing a contrast between the Old Covenant or the Old Testament and the New Covenant or the New Testament. He's been drawing a line between Moses and Christ, between living under the law and living by faith. We have seen, and Paul continues to show us, that Israel, the Jews, were living in a preparatory state. They were waiting for the Messiah to come. But in the meantime, they had the law to bridge the gap. It watched over them for a time. 
a time that was specifically appointed by the Father. But that time has come. The Father has expressed his love to his people by sending his Son. And so we no longer have to question the Father's love for us. As we come to our text today, we're going to see three things. Uh, We are slaves to sin. We have redemption in Christ and freedom in the Father. Slaves to sin, redemption in Christ, and freedom in the Father. As we come into chapter 4, Paul uses a similar but different, a slightly nuanced um, illustration here, comparison. And he talks about a father and a child. And a father uh, can set aside for his child uh, when he will receive his inheritance. And we see this oftentimes today uh, where a trust might be set up. And when the person comes of age, they have access to that trust. But in the meantime, they are not in control over that money or, or possessions or whatever it is. And this is true throughout history. A wealthy man could put uh, his inheritance of a son uh, into the hands of a caretaker, a guardian. A child knows he will inherit. He knows what will be his, but it is not yet his. And Paul says here, in the meantime, he's really no different from a slave. He, He knows what he will inherit, but right now he has no rights to it. He can't say to the caretaker, I want you to do this. The caretaker is going to say, I don't care. I don't care what you want me to do because I have been tasked with keeping you from abusing this. He has no rights over it. He has no legal rights. He simply must wait till the time where he will come into his inheritance. Uh, During the time of, of, of Paul, they were often called Uh, by their person who's over them, but actually their servant, young master. There's an acknowledgement that they're a master, but they also call them young by saying, you're not yet old enough. It seemed like bondage, but it was necessary to bring the child to full maturity. And Paul says, this is the role that the law has played. In the same way, we also were children. We were enslaved to the elementary principles of this world. Uh, and this elementary principles is, is referring to the law, but it, it can probably most easily be described so you can understand today. You've been enslaved to the ABCs of the world. It is uh, the primer, the introduction. Uh, it's a, like studying the alphabet of God's will. God raised his people on the law to prepare them for the gospel. William Perkins says it this way. Israel was a little school set up in the corner of the world. The law of Moses was, as it were, an ABC or primer in which Christ Christ was revealed to the world in dark and obscure manners, specifically to the Jews. It's like saying this. My son, if you catch him in the right mood, can sing to you his ABCs. A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K, L, M, O, P. We all know our alphabet, right? 
But just because he can say the alphabet doesn't mean he can make words out of it. He has all the tools, right? The tools are there. He has the cognitive knowledge of what the ABCs are to the point where he can recite them. But he can't go through, and for the sake of our lesson here, uh, pick out L and A and W and spell law and have any knowledge of what that word means. And this is the way we are, or Israel was, with the law. They have all the tools that say Christ, that spell out Christ, but they can't see it yet. They couldn't see it yet. It was there, but it wasn't there. Just as like all the words you can ever spell are contained within the alphabet. But just because you have the alphabet doesn't mean you can spell every word that ever was. You have the tools, but you don't have the means. You don't have the understanding yet. Paul insisted that being under the law was a sign of spiritual immaturity. Now, here's what the Judaizers have done. And and think about the lunacy of this, as it were. They came in and say, the law is the graduate program. Could you imagine if you went to graduate school, that means you're out of high school, you're out of a whatever kind of bachelor's program, and you go to master's class, and they're saying, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, and you're like, wait, what? No, that's not right. I've already done that. I, I was in elementary school. I went through kindergarten. I learned my alphabet. I've gone through high school. I've gone, I have a, a bachelor's degree in whatever. I'm not going back to the alphabet. But that's what the Judaizers were doing. They were going back to the alphabet and saying, we're going to put the law primary first. And this is an error. To grow, they needed to go beyond the law. And this is still true for us today. The law is important for us. We need to go see and study the law. It is our primer. It teaches us about God and who he is. It teaches us about his righteousness, his holiness, how we are to live before him. It informs us what's right and wrong. From the earliest of age, we see the importance of the law. If you have little children, you are constantly, over every day, sometimes ad nauseum, telling them, no, that's wrong. Yes, that's right. No, son, you cannot throw the remote control at your sister's head. That is not right. No, son, you cannot go color on yourself and the wall. You can't do it. No, over and over and over again, we're telling him no. But it's so as he grows, he knows right from wrong and is wrong. And it's no less true for us. It's something that we base our lives upon. No, we are not to take the Lord's name in vain. That is wrong. We are to, uh, to, to cherish his name and use it correctly. No, we are to not have idols. We are to have one God, God the Father who is in heaven. No, we are not to murder. We are not to kill people. It is our primer for life. It teaches us. But it's not something that we can base our lives upon. The history of redemption has moved beyond the law and has moved to Christ The law comes and loves us as we tend to love one another. It is fickle in its affection. Christ is not fickle. Christ's love for us is certain. It does not fail. 
as we come to him, as we grow in him, we understand his love for us, resting in its security. So we come before God, we come before Christ, and we see the love of Christ, and we rest in it. And we understand we have redemption in him. What has then moved us, in Paul's argument, from those who were slaves to those who are sons? And the answer Paul gives here in verses 4 and 5 is nothing less than the gospel of Jesus Christ. He outlines for us the very plan of salvation. If you want two verses in all of scripture to give you the whole order of salvation or plan of salvation, here we go. Verses 4 and 5. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born of the law, to redeem those under the law so that he might receive adoptions as sons. In two verses here, we get six individual theology lessons. We could really, and I'm, I'm sure you're glad that I did not, break this down into six different sermons. But for the sake of this morning, what do we see? First, we see that Paul talks about the timing of God. When the fullness of time had come. Under ancient law, the father established a time when a son would no longer need the caretaker. He had to fix it, or he had the right to fix it, when the son would re receive the inheritance. Jesus came at the exact point in human history when God was ready for him to come. The whole of human history is centered upon his coming. Now I know today if you're in school, still young ones, and you're learning about the timeline, we no longer use B.C. and A.D., right? It's B.C.E., before Common Era, and then after Common Era, or something, I don't know. But traditionally, we have called that B.C., before Christ, and A.D., which is Anno Domini, I believe, uh, which means, in essence, in the year of our Lord. History is based upon the coming of Christ Christ came when the world was ready for him, when God knew we'd be ready for him. The Gentiles were tired of serving pagan gods. The Jews who were wearied by the law, or the Jews were wearied by the law that they'd been trying to keep for thousands of years. The world was ready for Jesus. So when the fullness of time had come, when the time God had set before all creation for him to come, Christ came. So we see this in verse 4 still. God sent forth his son. God is the one who does the sending. God sends Jesus to us. And we see in this both God's sending, but we also see the preexistence of Christ. It is not that in the fullness of time, God created the son. God sent forth the son who had already existed even before he was born in Bethlehem. He is fully equal with the Father in glory and might. So he is God. We see here he's established as God. He is the Son of God. But what else is he also? Born of a woman. He is also man. 
He has true humanity. He has a ordinary birth. This is the doctrine of the incarnation. God who has become man. And what better way to emphasize the humanity of Jesus than to show us that he was born of a woman. Christ who came to save is the God-man. He is one person in two natures. He has a divine nature as well as a human nature. So he was born of a woman. Second, he was born under the law. When Jesus was born, he was born to an Israelite family. We know he was circumcised on the eighth day. He was to follow every part of the law of God. And guess what? He did. He was born under the law. He lived perfectly according to that law. Everything that was required of him, he did to total perfection. And he kept it for his people. But not only did he come under the law, that also means he came under the curse of the law. But he was not guilty, so he did not deserve its punishment. But even still, he suffered its punishment, its curse on our behalf. So he was born of woman. He was born under the law. And the next two things we see here in verse 5 are the reason for his coming. Why did Jesus do all these things? Why didn't in the fullness of time did he come? Why was he sent by the Father? Why was he born of a woman? Why was he born under the law? Verse 5, to redeem those who were under the law. This is the first reason he came, to redeem those who were under the law. Christ comes as more than a simple rescuer. He comes as a redeemer. Jesus paid the price for our freedom. This makes some Christians uncomfortable. God was born of a virgin to die on a cross. Ours is not a religion of stable and straw. It's a religion of thorns and nails, of wood and blood. He has redeemed us from the deadly curse of the law. And what qualified him to do so was his perfect and total obedience. John Stott says this. So the divinity of Christ, the humanity of Christ, and the righteousness of Christ uniquely qualified him to be man's redeemer. If he had not been man, he could not have redeemed men. If he had not been a righteous man, he would have not been have, he, he would not have redeemed unrighteous men. And if he had not been God's son, he could not have redeemed men for God or made them the sons of God. But Christ did redeem us, and he did it as a perfect God-man who died on the cross to save sinners. So first, he came to redeem us. But second here, verse 5 says what? So that we might receive adoptions, adoption as sons. God sent his son to make us sons and daughters of God. Christ accomplished our adoption as well as our redemption. As we gain freedom, we are gathered into a family. <coughs> Excuse me. Remember again here when he says so that you could be adopted as sons, Paul's not being sexist. We talked about this last week. 
Paul is showing to us that as sons, we can receive an inheritance. Only sons in this time could receive an inheritance. And now he says, you all, all of you, men and women and children, have been adopted as sons and receive an inheritance that comes with him. You have been made heirs according to the promise. And so now everyone who believes in Christ is God's own dear son. It's his own dear daughter. Christianity is not a bondage, but a freedom. Christ has brought us from slavery into sonship. It's amazing what Paul has done here in two verses. Just so theologically rich. Christ came at the right time. In him the fullness of God dwelt. He came as a man, born of a woman. It was perfect in all he did. He came to redeem us for our sins and secured for us our adoption as sons and daughters of God. But in this is the wonderful hope and reality of the gospel. And it is easy for many of us to doubt that God loves us at all. But in our doubt, even as we come and say, how could God love me? We must be pointed to the cross. He has loved us in Christ. He has loved us with a redeeming love. And so we are to turn and rest and trust in him. And as we are in him, we have freedom in the Father. As I've said, a Christian is at the core someone who has been purchased from slavery into sonship. And yet, we as children, uh, even as our own children, have a way of testing the parents' love for us. I remember when I first married Luann, for a long time, Ashton would never call me dad or father or anything like that. Uh, she simply wouldn't. Uh, and we were coming up, the, the reality was, at that point, and we told her this, uh, I am your father. I have married your mother. You are now my children. But it was after the time of adoption that she began to call me dad. There's something about the physical expression of love for all to see that changed something. And we too wonder if our adopted father really loves us at times. But he wants us to know we are his beloved children so that we can come and call upon him. He sent his son to make us his children, his own dear son, Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, who was in perfect unity with God the Father before all creation. He sent his son so that we may be made children. This adoption being applied uh, by the work of the Son being applied by the Spirit. It's a work of the triune God. The Father does the sending. The Son does the redeeming. And the Spirit convinces us that we are indeed sons and daughters of the God Most High. And the way we are to respond now, Paul says, and because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. This word Abba basically has this concept of dear dad or dearest father. Oh, Father, we get to cry out. This is what we receive, this inheritance. 
My redemption is based entirely on what God has accomplished through his son. You want to know the love of God for you? He has asked nothing of you but to have faith in his son. This is what is required for salvation. John Stott again says this, God's purpose was not only to secure our sonship by his son, but to assure us of it by his spirit. He sent his son that we might have the status of sonship, and he sent the spirit that we might have an experience of it. This comes through the affectionate, confidential intimacy of our access to God in prayer, in which we find ourselves assuming the attitude and using the language not of slaves, but of sons. God sent his son to make us sons and daughters. It's it's almost as this, Jesus Christ the son comes to us and lifts us up and puts us in the lap of the father. This is the, the sort of love and affection he has for us. And the the Holy Spirit comes and says, you are a child of God. This is who you are. So now we get to call upon him as our father. Now we've said it today, we say it weekly. We begin the Lord's Prayer and we say, our father. How often and how easily does that title become trite and insignificant to us? It's easy to forget what this title means, that we can call upon God as our Father. God, the creator of the universe. God, who is perfectly holy, perfectly wise, infinite, eternal. We get to call him Father. We can come before him in our hurts. We get to come before him in our joys. And we get to say, our Father, who art in heaven... You love me such that you sent your son for me. Because here's the thing. As Ashton's father, as Grace's father, as Josiah's father, I am continually letting them down. I'm continually falling short of what a father should be. But your heavenly father is not like your earthly father. He's not like me. He's not like your father. He's not like you men who have been fathers. He will not let you down. He will not fail in his love for you. He is perfect in all that he does so that you can come before him and say, Abba, Father, Daddy, my dearest Dad. It's something that expresses a deep love and affection. It expresses our heartfelt anguish, need of him. Have you ever, one of the things that kills me is when Josiah particularly at that age, I think, will hurt himself. And he says, Daddy, this cry of need, I need you. Do we go before our heavenly Father? Father, I need you in my hurts and in my joys. I need you. This is who our God is. We are to cry out in a heartfelt anguish and need of him. Paul reminds us that in the old man, we were slaves to sin. We were under the tyranny of the law. It had dominion over us, but it was only meant to be for a time. But Christ has now come. The fullness of time has now come. And in him, we have redemption. 
We are no longer under the law, but we have freedom in the Father. He loves us with an unending, unfailing love. And we are to rest and trust in him. And in him we receive our inheritance, the inheritance of sons and of daughters of the God Most High. This gets to be a foretaste of that inheritance. This gets to be the down payment of that inheritance. Because in this table, we see what Paul has just told us. God become man. God who came, who lived perfectly according to the law and died for our sins. Do you need to be reminded of the Father's love to you, for you? Excuse me. Then come to this table. This table is for you. This table is an expression of his love. Do you need to be reminded that the Father loves you in a way that no earthly father can? Then come to this table. For in this table, we see that love made manifest. So as we get ready to come, let us pray. Uh, As we prepare our hearts even now for this table, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for your word. We're so thankful for, for the reality that is true for us, that we are now sons and daughters of the God Most High, that we have received an inheritance that is greater than any that could be given. Would we rest secure in your son? Would we know that you are our father? And would we faithfully come before you in all things we ask in Jesus' holy name. Amen.